Could you pray with me as we come to God's word together? Lord, thank you that this isn't made up, but that this is true, that for everyone who has you as his or her God, you aren't far away, you're near, you are shepherd. We pray that by your spirit you would take these words, take these truths that you've given to us and instill in us the trust that we can rightly have and you, the good God, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. When a man loves a woman, and he, I know that's a song, I don't know that song. <laughs> uh, and he wants to express to her that he wants to lead her as a husband. He wants to walk through life with her. He wants to uh, make a home together with her. A lot of times, he'll give her something very beautiful, precious, and expensive. And a lot of times, he'll give this engagement ring that, assuming she wants to be her, uh, his wife, she'll put on her hand and she'll take with her wherever she goes. A lot of times, even after couples are married, woman will keep the engagement ring uh, along with her wedding ring on her hand. And I would guess that even in this room, uh, you're probably sitting close to someone who's wearing an engagement ring, maybe along with the wedding ring, or maybe even uh, just that engagement ring looking forward to a wedding. But I'd also guess, and I haven't taken a poll, but just from personal experience, that many of you who have those rings on or who have given those rings to other people, if it's been any significant amount of time, probably haven't really sat down and studied that ring in a while. Usually when someone gets the ring the first time, we spend all this time looking at it, showing it to people. But over time, we just forget to look at them. And it's fine, it makes sense, because the relationship that the ring symbolizes and the trust that the ring symbolizes is a lot more important than the ring itself. But still, it's probably good and probably helpful, hopefully encouraging, uh, probably a right thing every once in a while for couples who are married to look at their rings, to remember their vows, to remember that engagement and the promise of a husband and the trust that a wife has uh, placed in that man who wants to lead her, walk with her, make a home with her. So the ring speaks of the man's commitment to the woman but when the woman chooses to wear that ring and to show it to people and to make this public symbol something that people can see, it's an expression not just of his commitment to her, but of her trust in his commitment. Now, we don't all have diamond rings on our fingers, but as we look at Psalm 23 today, we're all holding in our hands one of the most precious, encouraging, beautiful gifts given by God to us to strengthen our trust in his commitment to his people. God has given his people this psalm of trust, a psalm that's beautiful both because of how it looks like a diamond, how it's written, but also more importantly because of the relationship, the real relationship that it actually expresses. 
So like an engagement ring or a wedding ring, this most precious, well-known, most memorized, most cherished, most familiar, most quoted even by people who don't believe in anything else in the Bible, this very familiar, precious psalm could become something we don't even remember to think about, just like an engagement ring. But today we get to, to look at it again, to think again both about the beauty of how it's written, this thing, this poem, this psalm that God has given us, but also more importantly, to be strengthened in our trust of God through the relationship that it symbolizes, that it describes, that it pictures for us. So today, let's, let's look again carefully at this psalm that we have been given by God and be reminded that we can trust God. Even if your real um, diamond ring that you have on your hand or your wedding ring actually speaks to you more about a relationship that's struggling or broken or painful or a lack of a ring on your hand is just a, a sad reminder of other struggles or... Uh, brokenness in those relationships, this gift from our God has a perfect, precious, encouraging power to it. We can trust God. It's a beautiful, memorable picture of what it means to be in relationship with him. A picture that's supposed to change us, supposed to change the way we view everything and the way we experience reality. Psalm 23 teaches Christians to say, the Lord is my shepherd. And to see in those words three sparkling facets of a God-given confidence. If the Lord is your shepherd, you can trust, one, that he is leading you, two, that he is walking with you, and three, that he has welcomed you and is giving you a home. So as we look at Psalm 23 today, We'll look first at the beauty of this gift. We'll, we'll notice the different facets of the way God put this poem together. And then we'll look at the, these three beautiful parts of the relationship described by this gift God has given us. So let's look again at Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As simple and familiar as this short six-verse psalm may be, if we slow down and look at some of the details, we'll, we'll start to notice all sorts of important and, and beautiful nuances that makes this, this beautiful diamond what it is. For, for instance, we, we could notice the structure. Even in your, your ESV Bible that we have here, uh, the publishers divide this up into three sections, verses 1 through 3, then verse 4, then verses 5 and 6. 
And in each of these stanzas, the focus is on God, what God does for his people, where God is with his people, what God is doing to welcome his people. But also in each section, in each stanza, there's one first-person declaration of trust. Did you notice that? So in, in verse 1, the very first verse says, I shall not want in response to the fact that God is shepherd. I shall not want. Then in the second section, in response to the comfort he has in the face of evil, he says, I will fear no evil. And then in the last section, the last line, the end of verse 6, he ends it by this confident declaration of trust. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we see this progression in the psalm of increasing confidence on the psalmist's part. He is confident that God is leading him through life. He is confident that God is walking with him through life in the face of death even. And he is confident that God is welcoming him into eternal fellowship. If we keep looking at the big picture structure, we, we also notice that the psalm switches perspective in important ways. So in the beginning of the psalm, he's talking third person about the Lord using this covenant name of God, Yahweh, this, this name that communicates God's faithful, passionate commitment to his people. The Lord is my shepherd. And then at the end, he brings that name back again, and he's confident that he's going to live in the Lord's house. He's like telling us, telling the reader how confident he is in this personal God. But then in the middle, which is very interesting, the, the middle section of the psalm is the section where there's darkness, where there's evil, where he's walking through this valley of evils, where there are enemies around watching him eat this meal, and he switches to the second person. He says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So confidence in God frames the psalm, but fellowship with God is what actually fills the psalm. The, the shepherd king that he's telling us, it's true, he rules the universe. He's not distant, but he's near. Near enough to speak with, especially in the face of evil, in the presence of our enemies. So this psalm, it doesn't just operate, though, on these big picture, structural, oh, we observe these things level. Each line, line by line, is a precious gift from God that's, that's been a blessing to his people throughout the centuries. So as we look at it line by line, let this gift from God impact us, inspire us to trust in God, our shepherd. As we look at the first section, we be, be reminded again that if the Lord is your shepherd, you can be confident that the Lord is leading you so you have what you need in this life. The Lord is leading you so you do have what you need in this life. The first line in verse 1 is actually kind of surprising because of who the psalm is written by. It's written by David, who used to be a shepherd boy, and then he becomes the, the model king of Israel. He becomes the, the king of all kings in their history, the one who's always looked back to the ideal warrior, defeat Goliath the giant, defeat the enemies of God's people. He is the king. And in the Old Testament, the leaders of God's people are often called shepherds. So if you're a shepherd in the Old Testament, it's talking about the leaders of Israel, the leaders of God's Old Testament people. So kings are shepherds. When they talk about the shepherds of the people, they're talking about the kings. And here's the king, the shepherd of God's people. And he says, 
The Lord is my shepherd. And so here is David, and he's admitting complete and, and utter confidence in the Lord as the one who's leading him. And the one metaphor that he uses to capture this relationship that he has with his God is shepherd. Think of all the images David could have used, all the images he does use elsewhere to describe his relationship with God. For example, in, in Psalm 18.2, he calls God a rock, just a couple psalms earlier. And then in that same psalm, he calls God his, his fortress. In the, in the next line, he'll call God his shield. In another psalm, he'll call God a, a tower. In another, he calls him my hiding place, my salvation, my king. And all, all these metaphors uh, picture different things to us about what it means to be in relationship with God. But, but why this psalm, why this imagery in a psalm of trust does the shepherd metaphor capture it for David? What is it about the shepherd metaphor that gave David such confidence and that can give you such confidence? Well, think about shepherds and sheep. In David's day, sheep were valuable, but sheep were also very vulnerable. So you want to just let them roam free. They'd either get killed or they'd get themselves killed, and so they needed a shepherd. They, sheep have to be tended. Sheep have to be led. Sheep need a shepherd who's actively engaged in their lives. And this is just what David is saying. God is personally leading him like a sheep. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then he is your shepherd. And that, that's a fact. It's not an opinion or a, a, an option that you have. He is actively engaged in your life. You, we don't just live in a land that God governs from afar with, with laws that he sends down to us for us to follow. He's come down to walk beside you. You're not just a face in a crowded church or a face on a crowded planet. You're not just a name on the list of Christians. He knows your name. And he's intimately familiar with what you need today. He's your shepherd. He's taken up his dwelling with you. He, he's taken it upon himself to oversee your daily provision. And David isn't just writing this because he wants to get his theology right. He's writing this because God actually, in his life, did things to show that he was shepherding David. So that's what we see here in these next verses when he talks about the, the Lord is uh, provide, uh, bringing him through green pastures and still waters. And I wonder how often we struggle with, with the confidence that David has because we actually have no, uh, no metaphor for what what God is doing in our lives, or we have the wrong metaphor. How, how often do we go for a day without talking to God because we forget he's the one who woke us up that morning? Or how often do I pray like I'm dictating a letter to a far-off king instead of speaking to a present shepherd? For how many of us on, on a given day would it be more true of our experience if we, if we started this psalm, uh, the Lord is the big man upstairs, I'm not going to waste his time, or I'm not going to waste my time. 
on him. Or for how many of us often is the metaphor, uh, the Lord is my anchor. I'll pull him out and throw him in when the storms get really bad. It's only because David recognizes the Lord both as the Lord over his life, but also as a God who's involved in his life that he can humbly and confidently say, I know things will go well for me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I was thinking about verse 2 and, and thinking still waters, green pastures, it's still this metaphor, but what, what is the metaphor for? Because it's not, we can't, it's, I don't think most people take it literally because when's the last time you went and lied in a field? Right? Uh, I don't think most of us are saying, yeah, I, God takes me, you know, they get a vision and he takes me to the streams and the brooks are there. So what, what is the metaphor for? And I think if, if, it's not, you know, it's okay, but I think if greeting cards or coffee mugs with Psalm 23 tend to get this psalm a little wrong, uh, this is why. Because it's not, it's not about a personal retreat day, even though personal retreat days are really great. But we waste the psalm if we don't get the metaphor right, and it's really important that we get it right, because especially in light of what's coming up in verse 4, which we'll look at for a, in a minute. There's nothing wrong with personal retreat days and enjoying nature, but for a lot of us, even though God gives good gifts of enjoying green pastures and still waters, a lot of us, life is mostly going to be characterized by the valley of the shadow of death with struggling through sickness and evil and difficult relationships and broken relationships and fighting daily against sin that, 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 that seems insurmountable. So if we think that the psalm is mostly just nice because it's telling us that uh, life should feel like a stroll through the woods, we won't get the strength, the encouragement, the confidence that God wants to give us. So I'm still trying to figure out what does the green pastures mean then? What, what are the still waters? Well, think about sheep. Sheep aren't interested in imagery. They don't go on personal retreat days. But if they don't have a safe place to be, if they don't have water and food, they're going to die. Sheep are utterly dependent on the shepherd to keep them alive. And here David says, his fullness of life, what's keeping him alive, is not his skill as king, not his uh, resourcefulness as a man who's looking out for number one. He says, God is my life. Green pastures, still waters, the Lord is my shepherd. Not, my Lord is my shepherd, my life is a comfortable bed of roses and a trickling brook and a golf course. This moment, God is keeping me alive. He's giving me what I need, and he knows what I need better than I do. I'm just a stupid sheep. And what is it that we need most? Because God does provide for our, our physical, tangible, daily needs. But what is it that we need most? And I think he tells us in the next verse. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
So David points out a need deeper than the need for, for raisin bran and orange juice, which we really need those things. And God does provide those things. Every meal that we have eaten really, truly, in reality, is a gift from God who planned to give us what we ate. God is sovereign, and he cares about his people. But the deeper need that David felt was for life to be breathed back into his heart. And it's the same, same for us. Our greatest need, your greatest need, is not health or financial security, but a soul that's alive to God, a heart that's encouraged in the Lord, eyes of our hearts opened to all that God is doing in us and around us. So what is God doing? If he really is shepherding you and all these other things, health, financial security, uh, circumstantial uh, details are kind of all over the place for us, and we know they are if we talk to each other. What, how is God shepherding us through these green pastures and still waters and restoring our souls? Well, I, I, there are many of you here that I don't know uh, very well, but I do know just as a fact some ways right now that God is providing for us because it isn't an accident that any of us are here today. We, we hold God's word in our hand in this place at this time because God cares for you. We're hearing God's word in song, in the sermon, in the Lord's Supper because God is personally provi- uh, invested in providing for his sheep. If you right now even have the slightest desire to have your heart more aligned with the truth about Christ or the glory of his name in the gospel, then that is God restoring your soul. Well, what else does he do? He doesn't just restore our souls, but the the second line of this verse says he reorders our steps. He, He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God is not a secret, private, mystical, theoretical shepherd. He actually changes the way we live. And this is a warning, really, uh, for anyone who wants God as a provider shepherd, but not as a purifying shepherd, as a God who actually wants to get in and change the way you live because they go together. But it's also an encouragement to any struggling Christian to reflect on the ways God really has changed your heart and your life. Think about how you speak about God now differently than you did before you knew him. Because now you can say, Christ is my savior. God is leading you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or maybe you've prayed in repentance over sin in in a discipleship group or with a family member or with a friend, uh, a sin that you never used to even bother acknowledging. God is leading you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or maybe you've struggled in prayer for someone else, for a parent or for a child or for a friend or for a coworker, because you do mixed motives and everything, but you do somehow in some way want them to be happy and holy and in a right relationship with Christ. God is leading you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's not just Psalm 23. The whole 
testimony of Scripture says that people that God saves, he changes the way that we live. So, for example, in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God really does lead his people in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And, and this is, as we get to verse 4, this is one of the reasons why the people of God will go through suffering. Because God's design is for righteousness to shine on the path of suffering that leads to glory. And that's what we see here in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here in the, in the midst of the shadow of death, we hear the psalmist's second declaration of confidence in the Lord, his shepherd. First, he says, the Lord is leading me, so I have what I need in life. And now he says, the Lord is walking with me, so I have no need to fear death. And that is where walking on paths of righteousness often leads us. God leads his people into valleys on purpose. If that's not true, then a lot of your lives and definitely the lives of persecuted Christians all over the world who we pray for don't make any sense. But this isn't a sentimental psalm because the true gospel is not one that offers temporary escape from pain, or a way to become immune to real emotions of sorrow and suffering. The gospel is the true story of the God who really actually comes down to be with people in a broken, cursed, uh, pain-filled world. So we look at the second statement of confidence. He says, I shall not fear for you are with me. Before it was, I shall not want because you lead me. Now it's, I won't fear because you're with me because of where you are. And if David's not lying out of the side of his mouth, this is really an incredible thing to say. I will fear no evil. There's a lot of evil things to fear. I could stray into sin that ruins my life. I could get fired. I could get cancer. I could die. This is a very scary world. But this is God's world. And he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. From the little tick bite, which I'm a lot more afraid of now that we, we live in a place with a lot more woods, to the tsunami, or from the dead mouse to the devil, God is with me. He's got a rod to beat off wild beasts. And he's got a staff to keep us in line. Just as he's provide, uh, provided good works for us to walk in, he's also designed trials and suffering for us to walk through so that we can know he's with us. Because the worst thing that you could lose in this life isn't our house or our health or our loved ones, or our life, it's God. 
for a sheep, the worst thing you could lose is your shepherd. But he is with you. God is writing the story of every Christian's life so that we walk with him until we get to him. And there is in this life now fellowship with the one who staked his glory on preserving us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't exist to rid our lives of trials, but he's chosen to be with us in them for his glory and eventually to bring us out of them for his glory. And that's what he did for Jesus. Brought him through the suffering of the cross into the glory of the resurrection, and he promises to do it for us. The Lord is walking with me, so I have no need to fear death. He is with me. And this fellowship of the God who walks with us is the next metaphor. And here the, the image in the psalm kind of just suddenly switches away from this more impersonal shepherd-sheep metaphor of two people who are really, uh, the shepherd and the sheep are on very different, very different levels. But now we see this metaphor of a friend hosting a friend at his table or even a servant serving an honored guest. Verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this is the stanza where we see this final climactic declaration of trust. The Lord has welcomed me, so I have a home. So again, notice the image is now not one of a shepherd providing food for a sheep. It's kind of more, go and get it, guys. The image is a servant king throwing a lavish feast for his guests. And, it, and this part isn't about some future distant ethereal hope of heaven. Because just as the Lord was with the psalmist in the presence of evils, here this feast is spread in the sight of enemies. But the enemies are impotent. They're irrelevant. They're, they're, they're present, but they're really powerless to do anything to get in the way of God's exuberant hospitality. He's spreading a feast for his people in the midst of a fallen and frightening world. His house is a house of spiritual refreshment and safety and celebration. So for you here, you may not have a, a place on the planet where you feel welcome. But if the Lord is your shepherd, then you have a home. Because the food is not a point, uh, uh, the, the, the point is not, I'm sorry, food on the plate. The point is a place at the table across from a father. And more and more, the psalm is honing in on fellowship with the shepherd. This is really God's posture toward his people. He throws a feast for them in the presence of a wilderness, in the presence of enemies. So the psalmist then says, he doesn't just spread a feast. He, he anoints my head with oil, this sign of hospitality, of refreshing a guest after a long walk and journey. And then it says, my cup overflows. 
And the point of a cup overflowing is not I have a great house, great job, great family. The point is God has welcomed me into his presence, and he wants me to be here with him. And it's not theoretical. It, it's, it's real. If you are a Christian, there is a person more wonderful, strong, awesome than anyone you know or any fiction you could dream up who loves you and is bent on giving you infinite joy in fellowship with him. And he has already started to do it for us. God has welcomed you into his family if your trust is in Christ by the grace of God. And you have now fellowship with Christians, reconciliation and real peace with God, a heart that has been transformed so that you're no longer a hopeless slave to sin, and the Lord's Supper, and all these things, and many more, are things that God really gives to us. Fellowshipping with other Christians isn't just something that we do, like a hobby. It's something God really gives to his people. The Lord's Supper, uh, which we're going to eat in a few minutes, isn't something that we just do. It's something that God really is, through the church, through uh, his word, offering to us as a sign of fellowship and communion. So when we live the Christian life now, we aren't just investing in future credit with God by going through the motions. We really are right now through the word, through communion, and through this community, if you're a member here at this church, he is providing what our hearts need. And we can be confident of that. We can receive that. He knows what we need. He's providing for us. He's protecting us. He's welcomed us to his table, into his home, into his family. So God, already even in the valley of pain, of rejection, of sickness, of death, he's already bestowing blessing. And because God is with us, he really wants us to be with him. So in this valley of suffering or questioning that you may be in, the pain the suffering, the valley, is not ultimate. God is. So he ends in verse 6. The psalmist says, Surely, surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's easy to forget, but that's true. God is after you if he's begun a good work in you. He's after you until he gets you into his eternal home. If any one of you is in Christ, Christ will not abandon you. So this is David's final assertion of trust. I will live with God forever. The Lord is my shepherd, the one leading me to wherever this dangerous life is taking me, but it's taking me to him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He'll provide for me. He'll protect me. He will fellowship with me here because he's made me a, a dwelling place with him. And I know for sure that he means for me. He wants for me to live with him there in the house of Lord, the Lord after I die. Because the end of our life, the end of your life, is not the end of your life. If the Lord is your shepherd and he's restored your soul, if the Lord is your shepherd and he's with you in the valley of death, 
the Lord is your shepherd and he's offering you a feast, a fellowship right now and putting up with you and me and all of our nonsense, despite the devil and his angels who would love to destroy us, but we can't because God says he protects us, then it wouldn't make any sense for this psalm to end in any other way. How, how could God do all these things and establish this relationship, bring us into his family, and then just let you die and rot? That's the end. If the Lord is your shepherd, then you can trust like the psalmist, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it's already begun, but one day there will be no valley. There will be no death. There will be no evil. There will be no enemies. There will be no pain and rejection and suffering and sin. There will just be fellowship with the one who loves us more than we deserve and more than we can fathom. You will live with God, and that will never, ever end if through Christ the Lord is your shepherd. Now, that's, that's all that this beautiful diamond ring from God speaks to us, and, and there's much, much more, but we know we can have trust that God leads his people, walks with his people, gives them a home, and brings them into fellowship with him. And for every one of us, we, we know in our heads, these, this is true. Even if you just, it's in the Bible, so it's got to be true. But while we can say what the psalmist says about these truths about God, a lot of times we do struggle, don't we, to actually feel the confidence that the psalmist feels. So we can say what he says, but can we actually do what he's doing? I mean, how, how could David write like this? I bet if we sampled our journals amongst us, uh, those of us who, who write our journals, they're probably not filled with things that sound like Psalm 23 on the whole. Uh, one of my uh, professors in college uh, wrote poetry, and he wrote this uh, kind of a parody of Psalm 23 as kind of an expression of what he more tended to feel like uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm going to read his poem to you. It's called Thoughts That End in the House of the Lord Forever. The Lord is supposed to be my shepherd. I should not want, though I often do. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Yet my heart still yearns to run the rapids. He restoreth my soul over and over because I keep destroying it. He leadeth me stiff-legged and halting in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I may fear no evil, but I will worry chronically. Although thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they confine me. Thou preparest a table before me, Still I turn up my nose at the menu, and the presence of my enemies distracts me. Thou anointest my head with oil, which gets in my eyes and runs down my back, while I busily wipe the spill from my overfull cup. Surely goodness and mercy should abandon me for my ingratitude. But they shall hound me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in spite of myself in the house of the Lord forever. See, the truth is David himself often failed to live up to the truths in this psalm. And we often fail. We say the Lord is our shepherd, but we feel like we do want. We fear all sorts of evils. We think our, cuff, our cups are half empty. We, we wish we were at our enemy's party. We, we often lose a taste for fellowship with God. We deserve to be cast out, not drawn in. So why aren't we? Why is God still for us? Why is he pursuing us with his love and mercy and kindness? Why is he so committed to bringing us into his eternal home? Well, there was another shepherd king who came a long time after David died. He trusted God in the face of every single temptation. He walked paths of righteousness perfectly for the glory of his father's name. He faced the darkest valley when he couldn't say, God, you are with me, because God had abandoned him, pouring out the wrath, the punishment for our sins that we deserve on him so that we can now say, God, you are with me. Because Jesus Christ was the perfect sheep who suffered for guilty sinners like us, God no longer has the slightest intention of bringing trouble on his people as judgment. Because of Christ, Christian, he is bringing you through troubles to show the presence and power of the God who's with you, the God who used the suffering of his son to glorify his son. God brought Christ, our king, through death into glory, and now Christ fears no evil because he has no evil to fear. He's conquered all his enemies, and he's made us his friends. Jesus is the guarantee for us that this is God's posture toward us, the posture of a shepherd. Because of Christ, we can be completely sure and confident that God isn't far away because the word took on flesh and lived with us. And he said, I am the good shepherd. We can be completely sure that God is not full of wrath at us because the word took on flesh and he laid down his life for the sheep. We can be confident that God really does give us his spirit. He really is at work changing people's hearts. He really has been the one to give us uh, friends and pastors to lead us and encourage us and walk with us. And really, because of Christ's suffering and death and resurrection, the one who said, this is my body, this is my blood given for you, really is offering us communion. So fellow Christians, fellow sheep of the good shepherd, have confidence, have trust in God as we walk in his ways, by his mercy, he is leading you. He is walking with you and bringing you home. The Lord is our shepherd. We will dwell in his house forever. Our home is with him, and he is here with us. Let us trust in him. Let's pray together.